I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. In 2022, investment in biopharmaceutical companies, pipeline activity, and the launch of novel medicines all dropped from the previous year. A new report from IQVIA's Institute for Human Data Sciences argues the downturn after two record-setting years is a post-pandemic return to longer-term trends. We spoke to Murray Aitken, Executive Director of the IQVIA Institute for human data science, about what happened to the biopharmaceutical sector in 2022, how to make sense of the data, and the shifting landscape in therapeutic and geographic investments. Murray, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Great to be with you today. We're going to talk about the IQV Institute for Human Data Science's new report on the biopharma R&D landscape, how pipelines are changing, and the state of funding for the industry. The report takes a, a more tempered view than most on the 35% drop in investment flows into biopharma in 2022, seeing this as a return to pre-COVID levels. How concerned should people be? So the way we look at it is really taking a longer term view of the uh, trend lines. And I think the further we get away from 2020 and 2021, the more that those two years look like truly exceptional years. Um, they were clearly exceptional um, as we went through the, the pandemic, but they were also exceptional in terms of the very high level of uh, funds flowing into uh, life sciences. In 2022, we saw that uh, those we, we saw a return to trend essentially, um, and and I think we, uh, in a sense, should put those two exceptional years aside. Um, they brought in what looks like about one hundred and twenty billion dollars in excess of what you what would have been expected. Um, but I think um, you know that those days are over, and we're back to what is still a a positive trend. Uh, for funding, even if it's down from the level that was seen in uh, 2021. At the same time, R&D funding by the 15 largest pharmaceutical companies hit a record $138 billion. Is this good news? Does it reflect a problem with R&D productivity, or is it the industry bracing for a new patent cliff? Well, I think the the industry continues to, uh, frankly, double down on its strategic focus on um, innovation in R&D. And we've seen uh, the large companies over the past several years uh, really uh, reduce some of their business in other areas in order to uh, really put the focus purely on R&D investment. Uh, And indeed, that Level hit a high point in 2022 at 138 billion, um, just on 19% of uh, revenue, which uh, also reinforces that this is a an industry that uh, that puts its money where its uh, scientific ideas are. 
in order to, um, and they're swinging for the fences, I would say, in terms of the um, level of scientific risk that's being taken. Uh, and they are very much dedicated to bringing the next wave of innovation uh, through that pipeline and, and ultimately to, uh, to patients. How strong is the research pipeline and on what indications are the largest portions of that funding being spent? Well, the pipeline for large pharma is, a, is always a mix of internally discovered uh, um, drugs as well as those that they license in or acquire from outside. You know, in our report, we uh, talk about the fact that emerging biopharma companies, these are ones that we estimate spend less than $200 million a year on R&D. Uh, those, that cohort of companies globally uh, accounts for about two-thirds of the total pipeline of molecules that are in clinical development. Some of those molecules will be held on to by those emerging biopharma companies all the way through uh, to regulatory submission and even launch. And actually a larger percentage are, uh, but there's still a large number that end up uh, in the in the late stage pipelines of larger pharma companies that uh, take them across the finish line and and then into the uh, into the marketplace. Um, so I think. You know, again, we we see the pipeline for the industry is at an all time high level. Um, it's it's similar level to what it's been the last uh, couple of years. Uh, but there's over six thousand molecules in in active development. There's plenty of science uh, to go around, and that does translate into these very high levels of uh, of activity. There is a notable geographic shift in where innovation is occurring. To a large extent, this reflects the growing role of China-headquartered companies. What's happened in that regard? So we started seeing the shift in um, early-stage funding towards China, um, you know, five to ten years ago, and uh, and there's also been a, a significant um, investment and commitment by the government there to support the development of the life sciences industry. There's been um, also significant, um, shall we say, modernization of the regulatory system uh, there. Uh, and, and the market for innovative medicines has also become more attractive um, in recent years. All of that adds up to a very active uh, life sciences sector there that is um, increasingly bringing uh, drugs uh, into the uh, clinical development pipeline and advancing them, sometimes on their own, sometimes in partnership with uh, with other companies. Some of them destined really only for the China market. Others destined for um, U.S. and and European markets as well. Uh, but we do think this is a uh, a trend that is uh, sort of catching up. Uh, with the with the rest of us, uh, we also note in the report that at the same time China's taking a a larger share of the um, of the pipeline, fifteen uh, percent at the end of twenty twenty two, up from six percent five years earlier. Um, Europe is seeing its share of the pipeline decline. It's gone down from twenty seven percent of the total to twenty three percent over that five year period. Um, and and I think this is uh, th these are trends that we should all be aware of. And um, I know that 
Europe is not going to cede its place in the queue of uh, and, and, and its contribution to innovation. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, China is, uh, is, is definitely gaining momentum um, and importantly, I think, has a lot to contribute um, globally to the advancement of medicine and bringing uh, new and, and more diverse uh, therapeutics uh, to patients. You talked about uh, the role emerging biopharma is playing in, in building the pipeline. These companies are now responsible for two-thirds of the molecules in the pipeline, up from about half. Does this reflect the continuation of large pharma externalizing research and relying more on acquiring rather than discovering new molecules? I think we've um, come through a period where uh, the ability to set up and and fund early stage biotech companies, um, uh, often coming out of academic institutions, um, many in the Massachusetts, uh, in Boston, Cambridge area, um, you know that has all become um, easier to do, uh, and and again we've seen this uh, steady increase in the flow of uh, venture funding. Uh, you know that that started. 15, 20 years ago. And I think, um, you know, the, the capital markets have enabled these companies to stay independent longer um, and to provide rewards to, to the investors. So their share of, uh, of the preclinical uh, activity has, has increased. Um, I think also we should recognize that a lot of the pipeline uh, is uh, comprises of uh, uh, drugs that are um, either for rare diseases or um, for relatively small uh, target pa- patient populations uh, that also often have relatively few prescribers. Therefore, when it comes to uh, launching and commercializing a drug, the need for that large multi-thousand uh, uh, sales force that large pharma uh, uh, can contribute is, isn't as great for for many of the companies. So I think this is all contributing to um, not only more companies being established uh, out of academia, out of academia, but also um, them holding on to their assets longer and not necessarily needing uh, either the deep pockets nor the um, sales force of a large pharma partner. There was also a. Uh a drop in new drug approvals and launches. Again, the report cast this as a a return to pre-COVID levels, but I'm thinking in in regards to approvals, there's such a a long time frame to work up to that. Would that be a result of COVID? Well, the the drop that we reported in 2022 was significant. We had 64 novel active substances launched globally for the first time uh, last year, that was down from 93 the year before. Um, we did take a look at what really drove that, dif- uh, that, that difference. And um, uh, part of it is, is uh, fewer COVID uh, vaccines or therapeutics were approved last year than in 2021, which is when the, the bulk of activity came through. We also had fewer uh, drugs launched for the first time in uh, in China, so these are coming out of China-based companies, um, and and those numbers uh, fell in 2022. We also saw fewer drugs 
um, being approved by the US FDA under the accelerated uh, approval pathway. Um, that's a pathway that's been getting uh, more scrutiny in recent times. Uh, we're not sure that's the reason, but we did notice that there were fewer of those accelerated approvals uh, last year. So add those three factors up and they do um, account for the bulk of that decline. 64, by the way, is still a very strong number. And if you go back pre-pandemic, um, we've been in the 40s to you know 50s. Uh, we had 60 in 2018. 64 uh, in 2022 is still a very strong uh, level of um, output from the industry's uh, pipeline. The pandemic did fuel the use of technology and, and innovative approaches. What do you see as the biggest changes and how lasting an effect do you think they'll have on drug development and drug discovery? Yeah, so we definitely saw this surge forward in terms of technology being used really across the healthcare system from, from telemedicine uh, to remote monitoring of patients and, and so on. Um, we are seeing those uh, technology tools increasingly being applied in the conduct of clinical trials, as indeed they were applied in some of the uh, COVID-19 related uh, trials. So we expect we'll see uh, more utilization of uh, technology uh, in clinical trials that enables um, trials to be conducted with uh, perhaps less burden to the uh, study participant, to the trial participant, uh, to the patient, um, less burden to the investigators conducting those trials. Um, it, they also allow um, more extensive monitoring of the patient during the course of the trial, uh, particularly if, if a patient is being constantly monitored, that produces an entire stream of, of data as opposed to what gets collected uh, periodically when someone uh, visits the investigator or has their uh, blood drawn. Um, so we think that this technology um, incorporated into trials is a, is a trend that is going to um, strengthen. There is a lot of hope that it will result in uh, faster trials. Certainly, we saw very fast trials in the case of the uh, COVID vaccines. Um, and outside of that, we still have a long way to go. It's still more than 11 years from the time that a new drug uh, is first patented to the time that it receives uh, regulatory approval. And that that's a median uh, time for the, the, the cohort of uh, new drugs launched in 2022. Um, so we've still got a, a ways to go to get uh, those uh, numbers down, but I think there's um, a lot of effort around to accelerate clinical development, to also to do it efficiently, um, ultimately to bring those new therapies through the development cycle uh, and, and to patients faster. There's been a lot of focus on diversifying clinical trial participation. I think one of the most surprising things in the report is, despite the public attention and the efforts from regulators and trial sponsors, there's been a decline in both Black and African-American and Hispanic patient representation. What's happened there? I think we're um, at, a, at a point between... Um, a lot of activity, attention, and focus being placed on this, and 
seeing that show up in the data that is um, publicly um, available. And, you know, what we reported uh, in, in our report was, was coming off of the clinicaltrials.gov uh, website for completed trials where the, uh, the, where the data has been, well, where the trial has completed and the data has been uh, uploaded. Uh, there's sometimes a, or there can be a year lag um, in that reporting. So when we, when we looked at that, we were also surprised, frankly, to see um, the further decline in the representation uh, in trials, uh, including um, those trials that only had U.S. sites, because we know that part of the complication in looking at some of these metrics is, uh, uh, is the role that global trials play. But even for trials that are only conducted with U.S. sites, uh, we saw the representation level um, decline. Um, we are hopeful that we'll see that turnaround in, in within the next year or two show up and that that will show up in the, uh, in the reported data. Um, because we know that a lot of effort is going into this. Um, a lot of commitments have been made, um, both financial commitments and performance commitments. Um, and we do see uh, a, a lot of progress in terms of the collaboration between uh, sites and patient organizations with sponsors support with uh, CROs uh, supporting these efforts as well. There's a lot going on around the country uh, to try to get at this issue. Um, it's it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen uh, spontaneously. Um, it'll take some time, and then there is this lag factor in the reporting. But we're we're watching this very closely, and we'll. Uh, be staying on top of it. I want to ask you about clinical trial productivity, but before you talk about that, can you explain how you measure clinical development productivity and a component of that, which is clinical trial complexity? So we have uh, tried to come up with a way to systematically look across the uh, industry and, and really all of the clinical trial activity uh, to measure what we call productivity. There are many measures of productivity, and I should say at the outset, we don't claim ours to be uh, perfect or ideal, but it, it's, it's a metric that we've been able to come up with and used for a few years. What we basically are looking at is uh, comparing uh, inputs and outputs, and we, um, we, we frame the output in terms of uh, success rates, and that means a, a molecule moving uh, from one phase of clinical development to the next, whether it's phase one to two, two to three, three to regulatory submission to approval. Um, so that's what we think of as the output. And then we compare that output uh, to the input, which we uh, measure as uh, complexity, the complexity of a trial with its uh, duration. The complexity we define based on five variables that, in our experience, do contribute to both cost and, and, and effort to conduct a trial. Um, there are also five variables that, um, uh, where there is data available because we are constrained by that in doing this sort of analysis. The five variables, uh, the number of subjects uh, in the trial, the eligibility criteria, uh, for the trial, 
the number of trial sites, the number of countries that the trial's been run in, and the number of endpoints uh, incorporated into the trial design. So we take those factors, um, we, we sum them up, we multiply that by the duration of the trial to come up with a, a metric for the effort or input, if you like, that goes into the trial that we then compare to the success rate in, in order to come up with a productivity index. What's happened in terms of clinical development productivity? You, you did see an increase there. What's responsible for that increase? Right. So we actually saw um, a, a pretty strong uptick in productivity uh, in 2022. When we dug into it, it is mostly uh, due to uh, fewer subjects being um, enrolled in trials in 2022. And that in itself is uh, very much linked to the uh, pandemic, right? So we saw these very large vaccine trials. Uh, a few years ago, we saw the, the large Ebola trials, which also enrolled uh, you know, large numbers of subjects. Uh, but, but COVID-19 really accentuated that. Uh, we're sort of off the high of those trials now, and that, that is what brought down the number of subjects uh, that were uh, included in trials. But we also did see um, some less dramatic but still important reduction in the number of uh, sites, the number of countries, um, and the number of eligibility uh, criteria. The number of endpoints um, has stayed pretty stable, and that, that's actually been rising for a few years uh, because we know that in that sense, trials are becoming more complex. Uh, but the big swing factor, if you like, was the uh, reduction in the number of subjects. Is there any reason to believe that this will be sustained? Um, I think we're likely to see a return to the trend line. Um, uh, looking looking ahead, uh, the other big variable uh, clearly is the success rate, the the numerator, if you like, in that equation. Uh, there too, we've seen a a decline in the composite success rate um, over the past several years, um, and it reached a low point in 2022 of 6.3 percent. You know, one way to look at that is the fact that. Sponsors are taking more scientific risk. They are swinging for the fences when they uh, move molecules through uh, clinical development. What you're looking for, of course, is a um, you know a, a a high fast failure rate, right, as measured in in phase one trials or early phase two trials. Um, what you want to see is the is the highest success rate in phase three trials because those are the most expensive and they take the longest. Um, we're seeing some positive trend there. We saw the phase two uh, success rate actually uh, tick up in 2022 um, and a slight uptick in phase uh, three success rates as well. Um, phase one declined, which again, can be viewed as a good thing, but that then pushed down our composite success rate uh, to the low point of uh, 6.3%. Um, I think we're going to continue to see companies taking these risks. Um, what's What we think is important is that there's a equal priority being given to trying to lower the operational risk um, associated with these trials. 
which in some ways can help offset that higher scientific risk. And that's where the role of technology decentralization of trials um, using novel trial designs, real world data, um, and even using AI in, in some areas uh, can be very helpful in, in reducing that operational risk um, that we still see at a, at a relatively high level. You mentioned AI. There's a lot of excitement around AI these days in drug development. How broadly is AI being adopted? And is there evidence that this is cutting the time and cost of R&D or reason to believe it'll do so in a sustained and meaningful way going forward? Well, we certainly hear a lot about um, AI. Uh, we hear a lot more than we sort of see in terms of uh, a clear evidence of um, either its use or its impact. But but it's 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 moving, and and we're seeing the the green shoots, if you like, of this. We uh, included in our report uh, the fact that we can now track um, at least nineteen molecules that are now in. Uh, in the pipeline for clinical development um, that that came out of AI, uh, AI platforms in the in the discovery research stage, um, and and so that and that's an important area that's getting a lot of uh, attention and and focus. And and again, we can see tangibly uh, the results of that in terms of drugs coming through. We also know that AI is being used um, more extensively uh, when it comes to site selection. Um, investigator uh, prioritization um, and patient recruitment, um, and you know it's it's again it's the the anecdotes are positive, the the pilots are, are positive. Um, you know there is definitely a benefit to be seen there. Um, we're not yet seeing it move the needle um, overall at a at an industry level, um, but I think um, there's enough effort and investment and enthusiasm. Uh, for AI as an enabler of improved productivity that we'll be seeing a lot more of that in the coming years. Murray Aitken, Executive Director of the IQV Institute for Human Data Science. Murray, thanks as always for your time. Hey, you're very welcome. Enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it. Thank you.